Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Marty Chavez, partner and vice chair at Sixth Street Partners. Before joining Sixth Street, Marty served in a variety of senior roles at Goldman Sachs, including chief information officer, where he oversaw the firm's 9,000 engineers, chief financial officer, and global co-head of the firm's securities division. I first got introduced to Marty in 2013 when I was a Wall Street reporter and have wanted to interview him ever since. In this episode, we discuss Marty's growing up in a large Hispanic family in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We talked about Marty's parents placing a strong emphasis on education. And as Marty's mom put it, he had to work twice as hard to get half as far. Marty excelled in math and by seventh grade, he was taking college math courses at the University of New Mexico. That's also where he discovered his love for computers. And that's where he found freedom in the university's computer lab. We talk about Marty's unlikely journey as a Stanford PhD in Silicon Valley to Wall Street and being the first openly gay employee at Goldman Sachs in 1993. We talked about leaving Goldman, finding sobriety, building and selling a software startup, retiring, and ultimately returning to Goldman Sachs. We also talk about Marty's views on the future of finance and his thesis for how software ate finance and will continue to eat finance. I really enjoyed this conversation with Marty, and I think you will too. Marty Chavez, partner and vice chairman at Sixth Street and former CFO of Goldman Sachs. It is so great to have you on the show. Welcome. Such a pleasure, Julia. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and just to help folks get to know you better. Let's go back to your earliest years and growing up in New Mexico. I know you came from a big family and I was kind of hoping maybe you could just take us back to that time in your life and how it shaped you. So I am from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I'm the oldest of five siblings. I, looking back, see how how lucky I was, first and foremost, to to be born to my parents. I'm not sure I saw it that way at the time. My parents were were intense about a few things. Um, they were super intense about family, religion, and education, not necessarily in that order. And I was very aligned with them on at least on at least two of those, uh, but but not so aligned over time on on religion. Um, but certainly, uh, I I inhaled their emphasis on education, and that really came from from being underdogs. I don't know how much you know about New Mexico, um, but it's uh, <laughs> I think New Mexico is a really interesting way to to see and experience the diversity of when we say Hispanic and Latin, that's just covering a lot of territory, right? It's a, it's not a racial group. it's a, it's more cultural. Um, it, it means you have something to do with any of the historical territories of the Spanish Empire. I think that's probably the best definition that I can, I can come up with. And you probably shouldn't forget the Portuguese Empire, too, while we're at it. Right. So it's a lot of different groups of people. Um, but New Mexico was a particularly weird one. Right. So um, there used to be a column in the local paper. One of our 50 is missing. And it would be stories New Mexicans would write about their interactions with other Americans who were a little vague on, is it Mexico? 
right? New Mexico, it's Mexico, isn't it? Like you can't imagine the number of times that I've had those interactions with, with fellow Americans who aren't aware that it's a state, right? So that's kind of the first thing about it. It's a state, but for most of its modern history, after the Native American history, it was part of Spain. And then for a very short period of time, after Spain um, uh, surrendered Mexico in the War of Mexican Independence, it was Mexico for about five minutes until the U.S. decided that Mexico was in the way of manifest destiny and uh, declared war and broke Mexico in two and took the northern part, which was Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, Utah, Nevada, Colorado, lots of territory, right? And so there's this kind of this weird sense growing up that we're immigrants, but wait a minute, we were, we were here before the Puritans, so we're not immigrants. Uh, it's like the country immigrated to us. And even though New Mexico was majority Hispanic, it was very obvious to me growing up that the Hispanics were second-class citizens in New Mexico. You just, all you had to do was look around. And I went to a wonderful prep school. I'm super grateful to, but I was the only Hispanic kid in a prep school of 500 students in the city that's 75% Hispanic. And so that was a little bit weird. And, but always what I internalized was education is the answer. My mom would always say, don't complain about the Anglo-Saxon majority. Yes, they do run everything. You're Hispanic. You know, boo-hoo, I do not feel sorry for you. You're going to have to work twice as hard to get half as far. That was always my mother's line. And so, yeah, that was that was how I grew up. Work twice as hard to get half as far. You got a huge disadvantage uh, being Hispanic but education is the way out of the box. And so I think the, the rest of my story is pretty much living, living that out. I, I, I turned out to be really, really good at math and my uh, school teachers recognized it and they accelerated me into uh, University of New Mexico uh, math when I was 11. And so that was a little bit odd sitting in calculus with all these college freshmen, but you know, I was really good at math. And uh, then I discovered computers pretty early on. You got a, an account at the computing center uh, at the University of New Mexico, along with your enrollment in, in introductory calculus in the math department. And I started, that is where I found freedom from the very strict uh, regimen of my mom and dad. As long as they knew that I was at the University of New Mexico Computing Center, I could just live there as far as they were concerned. I could stay there for, for 24 hours doing whatever I wanted to do. Um, and so for me, uh, computers, programming, algorithms, data structures, my brain associates them with freedom and doing my own thing. And uh, I think I just got really lucky that the area that where I had some talent and which I found uh, an expression of freedom uh, turned out to be a, a really good career path. Yeah, um, I, I really appreciate you just sharing um, your, your entire 
background and um, kind of the evolution and, you know, the way your parents influenced you and um, kind of getting that technology bug. And I think um, one of the things I really just love about you is uh, you sit at this intersection that is to me like really unique of Silicon Valley and Wall Street. So um, you you caught the computer bug early. Talk to me about kind of your evolution in technology and then, you know, translating that to finance. So I did catch the computer bug early. I took a lot of math and computer science classes at UNM before I went to college. And then my first year in college, I was really young because it skipped a grade and I had sophomore standing. So I was 16 years old at Harvard. I'd never been east of Albuquerque, which is not very far east. And uh, and uh, and there I was just kind of dropped in the middle of this alternate reality. And I had to declare a concentration as a sophomore standing. And I didn't know anything about anything. So I remember at the Science Center, the science professors were recruiting, campaigning for their departments, you know, fresh recruits. And, uh, and so I wander in. And there's a legendary professor, uh, Steve Harrison, in the biochemistry department. And I remember he's leaning across one of these tables and he says, what are you? Um, kind of like a, a Harry Potter question, right? Almost a, a who are you? And I said, I'm a, I'm a computer scientist. And, and he said, and I remember this like it was yesterday. And this is 1981. He said, the future of the life sciences is computational. And now that might seem like a very obvious thing, but in 1981, this was a, a, preposterous statement. It was so far out there and so visionary. And he he was working on a problem, which was given the sequence of amino acids in a protein, how is that protein going to fold? I didn't really know that this would become one of the most interesting problems ever Right. And so let's bookmark that the protein folding problem. And he said, I'd love for you to come and, and work in my lab on this problem. We are working on a couple of viruses and we're crystallizing the proteins in their coat and we're using X-ray diffraction to deduce how the proteins fold. And if you sign up as a biochem major, I will make sure that you only have to take one wet lab class and intro to biochem. And you can fill out the rest of your major with any kind of science class you want. Heavy emphasis on computation and on math and on quantum chemistry. I thought this sounded like a great deal. And I'm glad he cut me that deal because I was a complete disaster in the lab. I'm not sure that I ever got a single wet lab experiment to work out in, in a way where I could make any sense of the data. I had multiple left thumbs and uh, you know, just was terrible at that. But I was really good at a very different thing, which was writing computer programs to simulate a scientific or industrial reality. And so, Julie, I would say this core idea of creating in software a digital twin of some industrial or scientific process is something that I'd worked on in my first summer job in New Mexico 
the government had decided to stop detonating atomic bombs, but rather to simulate how they would detonate. And certainly the people in Nevada appreciated that. And so we would actually simulate individual electrons scattering from a neutron bomb, and we would do it on supercomputers. That was my first summer job. And I got to Harvard and doing something different, which is interpreting all the X-ray diffraction patterns to figure out how a protein folded. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do once I graduated? And I didn't have any idea what to do. I knew in my heart I wanted to be a computer scientist. My parents, specifically my mother, had a different dream, kind of an immigrant dream, which was a doctor in the family. And you know, my mom and I still argue about this very gently. She says, I never told you to be a doctor. I just said it would be a wonderful thing. And I'm sure that's right. I, I heard her statement, it would be a wonderful thing. And I interpreted it as a commandment. Anyway, I, I struck a deal with her. I said, I don't really want to go to med school, but I will apply to one med school that has a great computer science department in the same university. And then if I get in, I'll go. And so that was Stanford. And so I went to the MD PhD program at Stanford. So one thing you're probably wondering, Julia, is like, where's the finance in here? And the answer is nowhere. The thought of going into finance had never entered my mind. And that's significant. I was college class of 85. Many of my classmates went to Wall Street and then the crash of 87 happened. So you will find almost nobody in finance from the college class of 1985. But I took a very different path, which was I was I was dissecting cadavers when the crash happened. I didn't even know about the crash. I didn't care. I was a starving grad student. The crash didn't make any difference to me. No one in my family owned any stocks anyway. Um, so I was just on a completely different plan, which was, can we um, invent techniques that we now call artificial intelligence or machine learning and apply them to solving hard problems in medicine? And this was my MD-PhD program. And it was a wonderful experience. I, I um, worked on some early uh, avenues of AI that turned out not to be incredibly fruitful then. They seem to be coming back now. These are belief networks, decision networks, causal networks. Another threat of AI, which many of us disparaged at the time, connectionism or neural networks, has turned out to be incredibly fruitful and productive. So I and many people were just completely wrong about that. But in the early 90s, that was my PhD year, we were beginning to realize that the problems we wanted to solve in medicine were way too hard compared to the compute power at the time that we had available. And we were sad. And this is one of the many nuclear winters of AI. We, we stopped even using the term AI because our aspirations for it were so far beyond any reality that we could actually achieve. And so why is this important? Well, there was a little, there was quite a little group at Stanford 
in this department uh, that was working on medical information sciences. I was one of them. Um, Eric Horvitz, who's the chief science officer of Microsoft, he was one of my colleagues in that same little department. David Heckerman, uh, distinguished scientist in machine learning at Amazon, he was also in that little group. And then another one of our colleagues is uh, really by far the most successful of, of the whole group. And he decided um, in some form that medicine was too hard, but there were other problems that maybe you could use AI to solve, such as what movie to watch tonight. And that of course is Reed Hastings who went up and started Netflix. So it was a really interesting group of people um, who were all in various ways realizing that our aspirations for medicine and AI were a little early. And so in the middle of this, I got a letter from a headhunter and I didn't feel that special because I saw the same, obviously the same FedEx package in multiple mailboxes at Stanford. And the letter said, I've been instructed by Goldman Sachs to make a list of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley with masters or PhDs from Stanford in computer science and bring them out to New York for an interview. And I saw this and I can tell you, Julia, I thought, this is this is crazy. I have zero interest in Wall Street. Silicon Valley is where I'm meant to be. And yet I did like Broadway shows. I had some friends in New York and I thought I'm going to scam this bank for a free trip to New York. And I'm not going to take it at all seriously. So I went to New York. I hung out with my friends over the weekend. I went to uh, Goldman for my interview on a Monday morning and I arrived and, you know, things are a little bit different now, but nobody welcomed me to Goldman Sachs. Someone shows up and says, what do you want? The math quiz or the computer science quiz? First words. And I, <laughs> I, I, I'm just scamming you for a free trip. I don't know what you're talking about. And so I said, I'll, I don't care. I'll do, I'll do both quizzes. What I didn't realize was that this was exactly what they were hoping for. They were looking for people who could do the math quiz or the computer science quiz. Um, one thing went to another. They made me an offer. I was very reticent to accept the offer. Indeed, I just sat there looking down at the ground because the received wisdom was that Wall Street was a very homophobic place. And I'd come out of the closet just a few years earlier in Silicon Valley, where it was more or less a non-event to be LGBT. And I just thought, I'm not going to go back into the closet just for some job. And so I somewhat infamously outed myself in my 1993 uh, job interview. And the partner who was hiring me, not a partner at the time, about to become a partner, didn't seem to care at all. Said, do you have a boyfriend? He can come out and we'll find him a job too. And I thought, okay, this must be a gay friendly place. So I think I'm going to say, yes, I have some student debts to pay and I'll come and work here for a year or two. And then I'll go back to Silicon Valley. And that is how I ended up on Wall Street. Um, I discovered pretty much right off the bat 
that I was the only out gay person in, in the entire company globally. Um, and there were maybe, there was just a tiny handful of out gay people in the whole industry at the time. Uh, but something that I appreciated at Goldman Sachs then and throughout my career, so I wouldn't say it was so much a gay friendly place as the gay indifferent place. As long as I was working on the team uh, to help the firm uh, manage risk and get the job done for the clients and make money and not lose money, um, everybody was pretty much not interested in whether I was gay or straight. And yeah. it was fine either way. And that's that's always been good enough for me. Yeah. I remember, um, gosh, I don't know what year it was, but I know, I think there's a memo one time and you talked about like being your authentic self at work and talk to me about that and why that was so important because you, you noted that you were the only one at the time. And I mean, you're, you're, you're a trailblazer. So talk to me about the importance of being authentic at work. So Julie, I appreciate your describing me as a, as a trailblazer. Uh, sometimes pe people, junior people will describe me as a hero and this makes me wince and cringe. Um, I do not really see myself that way at all. I just see myself as just being me, right? And that gets to the point of authenticity rather than being a hero. Um, maybe there is a, a degree of heroism in being oneself when there's so much pressure to conform to what we think others want us to be or what we think we should be, right? There's so many levels of imagination in there, right? Not, not what I think and who I am, but what do you think I should think about myself, right? And that, I just make, it makes me crazy. I cannot keep track of all of those levels of imagining what I ought to be doing because someone else says it's the right thing to do. Um, and I find it confusing and it's a kind of a lie. It's a kind of a, a simulation and it's, it's a lot of work to run that simulation. So one thing I would always say to the LGBT people of, of Goldman Sachs is you could spend a lot of your time and energy running a simulation of what you think other people want you to say and do. And it's a complete waste of time because when you come out, it's news that you came out. It isn't news that you're gay. Everybody already knew. And so that's just a waste of time and energy. Wouldn't it be better if you just put that time and energy into your work? We, as the leaders of Goldman Sachs, would just find that to be a smart, a smart trade. Like, don't bother with that simulation. And I found that that, that way of talking about bringing your whole self to work um, resonated with a lot of people. Um, but at the same time, I think you, know, you got to be careful with this idea of bringing your whole self to work, right? There's the, there's the appropriate degree of transparency. Your colleagues do not want or need to know absolutely everything that transpired over your weekend, right? That there's a degree to which it's oversharing. And then at the other end of the spectrum, if you're manufacturing an alternative set of facts 
for your weekend that have nothing to do with your actual weekend, that's not where we want to be either. So there's something about being professional, remembering that it's work. It's, it's you know, my, one, of my, one of my bosses used to say, you don't say to your spouse, I'm going to fun today. You know, you say I'm going to work today, right? And so it, it work and fun are not the same, are not the same thing. Um, but, but being yourself, I just found uh, not only was more efficient, but it enabled me to build a background of relatedness and trust with my colleagues because I was a whole a whole person to them, not just kind of an artificial Stepford simulation of a person. And certainly I found in the difficult times, the financial crisis being one of them, having that degree of trust and connectedness with one's colleagues made a huge difference um, in the outcomes. Yeah. Talk to me about the time period. Um, so you, you joined Goldman in 93, uh, you left in 97. You you start a, com- a you start a tech company, you sell it, you're retired. And then you get a phone call from Gary Cohn in 20, 2005, I think, to come back. Can you t- take me through the those years. I know it's a lot, but take me through like why you came back. So when I left, um, when I left Goldman Sachs, I would say in retrospect, with perfect hindsight, and this I think applies to almost everybody who leaves a company, there's the reasons you give, there's the reasons that you're thinking about inside your head, but you're not giving. And then when years pass, there's the actual reasons, right? And those three are are really pretty different things. A big part of my leaving Goldman Sachs was I realized at the time that I needed to choose sobriety. All right. I was, uh, I, my drinking had gotten to a point that was, that was, um, that was bad for my life and my peace of mind. And I found it extremely hard to come out as a sober person in Wall Street, where in my life, as I constructed it, my personal social life and my life with my colleagues, there was an awful lot of drinking going on. And so instead of addressing it head on, I, um, I did a classic thing that people talk about as they're recovering from alcoholism. I pulled the geographic, like I'm just going to change my, change my circumstance and uh, the people, places, and things around me, and maybe that'll make it easier. So that, that I think of now as my actual reason for living, leaving Goldman. And round about 2000, there was a huge boom going on, the dot-com boom. And I thought, well, I, uh, I know people with capital to invest, and I know a few things about software, and I know a few things about risk management and finance. I'm going to start a company too. And so I uh, had my lawyer, lawyer draw up a very simple convertible note document um, that uh, allowed me to raise $15 million um, in almost no time at all, like 24 hours. And I thought, okay, this is the universe telling me that I definitely need to start this company. I'm not sure that was what the universe was actually telling me (laughs) because the dot-com bubble burst about two weeks later. 
And, and I think that might have been one of the high points in our valuation. And there's certainly echoes to our current time many, many, many years later. But, you know, I, I had vivid experiences with, with down rounds um, that, that companies are now starting to, to contemplate 22 years later. It was an intense experience. It was incredibly educational and illuminating in the harsh reality of having raised a bunch of money and not being able to raise any more money for any foreseeable future and having to get to a product with actual paying clients using the capital that we had in the bank. That was a, that was grown up time for me. That was when all the fantasies went away and we either had a product with paying clients or we were a bankrupt company. And I learned a lot of things about how to deliver products that customers actually want that solve a pain point for the customer such that the customer pays for it and you deliver the product on time. I would say that core discipline, even though I was good at software and a bunch of things, that core discipline is much more about teamwork, communication, integrity, risk management, authenticity, clarity, than it is about computer science. That was one of the most valuable things that I ever learned. But then I would also say alongside Mark Andreessen, um, who has a very vivid description, and I'll, I'll quote him and I'm sure I'll get it a little bit wrong, but, but he says, uh, being an entrepreneur is like chewing glass. Being a successful entrepreneur means that you enjoy the taste of your own blood while you're busy chewing your glass. And so I, I certainly I certainly got to experience a version of that. Um, finally got the company to a point uh, where we sold it to SunGuard and I was I was free. And I remember uh, getting a house on the beach and Fire Island and staring at the ocean for a few weeks <laughs> and just uh, decompressing from this whole experience. And in the middle of it, I got a call from Gary. Gary Cohn had been my boss uh, my first time around at Goldman. He was the head of the commodities trading business and he'd always taken an interest in my career and treated me really well. And so of course I was going to take his call and you know, Gary being Gary, the call as I remember it was something like, um, I heard you sold your company. Congratulations. I heard you retired. That's completely ridiculous. And I'm just calling to share with you that you are returning to Goldman Sachs. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, okay, this is, this is funny. Like when I left Goldman, I would, I would have said, there is no way I'm going back. Um, but I remembered something that my coach said that really stuck with me. She said, you get to re-experience everything while sober that you did while you were a drunk. And, uh, and you might find it's different the second time around. And so as with a few years of sobriety under my belt, with this intense dot-com experience of having built a company worth selling, out of the rubble of the dot-com bust and having learned a lot about how to make commercial enterprise software, things that I didn't know anything about before, really. Um, I thought, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is a good idea. Maybe this is a, an ex the universe telling me something. Um, I talked to my mom 
And she said, why don't you do a retreat? And, and then maybe you'll get some clarity on whether to say yes or no to Goldman Sachs. And so there's this wonderful monastery up in the mountains in northern New Mexico. It's a, it's a Benedictine Trappist monastery, cloistered monks. They make beer. Uh, that's, that's how they keep the monastery going. It's called Christ in the Desert. Um, there's a vow of silence. And it was designed by a Japanese architect, and it looks like a Zen uh, monastery. And so I went up there for a week. I was assigned a task, which was to clean the bathrooms. And I took a vow of silence for a week. And (laughs) uh, I I once said it in an interview, and I don't, I'm going to be careful about how I say it now, but let's just say that it is the one time in my life when I had a very clear communication from the universe, which was go to Goldman Sachs, say yes. And so I did say yes. And, uh, and it, uh, it was a very different experience the second time around. Um, Gary told me this, he said, um, you're pretty much the same guy that you were before, except completely different. I like that. Um, so you go back in 2005 as a managing director in equities. I know you became a partner a year later. And then when I first got um, kind of introduced to you was in 2013 when you became the chief information officer. And I got to say, like, and I know you don't want to maybe you don't want to be called trailer by user, but you really were the leader and the pioneer of technology. And I would make the argument that, you know, tech at Goldman wouldn't be nearly where, where it is today if it weren't for you. And um, I would just love to kind of explore with you, Marty, like, what do you think of, um, like, what's kind of your view when it comes to the future of finance? Well, first of all, I want to say you give me, you give me way too much credit. I, um, I was, when I joined Goldman the first time around, I was the fourth person to join a three-person design team that was working on a crazy mission to build a piece of software that would capture all the risk, all the trades, all the time series, all the models, all the reports. That was the ambition. It was a crazy ambition at the time. It started off in foreign exchange and a partner named Lloyd Blankfein had commissioned it. And this idea of building a piece of software that was a digital twin of the trading business so that you could inspect that digital twin and run simulations on it and ask questions of it and effectively lose a lot of money in simulated reality so that you didn't have to lose it in actual reality, right? That was the core idea. And the genesis of the project was really Armin Avanesians who hired me, Mike Dubno, Kevin Lundin, Glenn Gribble. Um, they were the three people who really designed it. And I just arrived at the right place, the right time with the right preparation. I think what was something that, you know, everybody brings a little bit of something different to the table. I really enjoyed being out with the clients and that wasn't true of all of my colleagues. And I also speak Spanish 
And something my mom had told me, your Spanish will be important for business. And I thought, what does my mom know about business? Well, she was right, right? There was an important moment on the oil desk when the the head of the desk before Gary comes by and says, "Um, Marty, somebody told me you speak Spanish. And I said, well, yeah, of course I speak Spanish. Have you ever noticed my last name? And he said, yeah, all these years, I thought you were Jewish as if you couldn't, as if you couldn't be both. And then he said, I need you to go to Buenos Aires the day after tomorrow and talk to a bunch of our clients about risk management in Spanish. And so I think that was what enabled me to go in a different direction and really get out and see the world and see the clients and have a bigger context for the software that we were building. And then after I had this dot-com experience, I thought, well, maybe I can apply what I learned in the dot-com at the scale of Goldman Sachs. And so that was maybe my differentiated uh, contribution, but I was standing on the backs of giants and visionaries who had really seen the possibilities for what would happen if you built a digital twin of the trading business. And that created such a successful virtuous cycle for Lloyd, for Gary, for many others in this kind of legendary group of people inside the trading business who went on to lead all of the firm. And I was just the the most junior guy who was a part of that, um, part of that. And that worked out really well. So I'm grateful for that. And I saw a few things along the way that, I think other people saw it too. I saw it in a particular way. So one thing I thought was, all right, the software is telling the traders um, how many futures to buy or sell to hedge the position. And I remember thinking, do we really need to have that last manual step where a trader reads a report and calls the broker to buy or sell that many futures Maybe we can close the loop. And many other people were thinking about this too. I think um, I just showed up in the equities business at the right time when it was really ready for this. And there was a lot of openness to automation. There were new regulatory structures, um, national best bidder offer, reg NMS, that caused the latency of equity trading to head to microseconds very quickly, much faster than human beings could trade. And so um, all of these things came together at the exact same time. And, and I got to be, I got to be a part of it. So after I retired from Goldman Sachs, I took some time to step back. Uh, dean of Stanford GSB, the business school, asked me if I'd teach a class. And I thought this would be a good experience to synthesize what I've learned and, and share it. And so I created a class, How Software Financed. Um, you can take it on Coursera, or you can just get the materials for free off my website. It's a little plug for my class, um, where basically I went through not only what is software done to finance, but what is it going to do? And so the, to answer your question, the thesis I'll share with you is really expounded in much greater detail in the class, and it is that the old distinctions and dichotomies that we always think of on Wall Street, salespeople versus traders, market data users versus market data providers, um, 
buy side versus sell side, all of those distinctions, publics versus private, the, the distinctions are a lot blurrier than they used to be. Let's put it that way. And there's a more useful way to think about the future of finance, which is everything that you're doing in finance is either providing a service or consuming a service provided by others. And people are always going to be a part of this, but there's going to be increasing swaths of the business that computers are doing. So let the computers do the things that the computers are better at and faster at. So people do the things that only people can do. And you better package all of those services that you're providing in a programmatic interface, a computer interface or an application programming interface, an API. So the future of finance is much better understood in terms of which APIs are you providing and to whom, and then which APIs are you consuming? And you better be providing some service packaged as an API, and you better be really, really good at it, and you better be world-class, because there probably isn't room for more than two or three providers of that API. And then every other thing, you should be consuming APIs provided by others. And a very important postscript is that the API boundary coincides with a regulatory boundary. You are regulated as a bank holding company. You are regulated as an asset manager. You're regulated as a market maker. And don't, don't try the cute slash confusing strategy of maybe we'll be on both sides of that regulatory boundary. Maybe we're being a bank, but hoping that the regulators don't notice that we're providing banking services and don't regulate it. That is the strategy I recommend to nobody. I would say know where you are on that regulatory boundary and st stick to your side of it. And you probably don't have much business operating on both sides of the regulatory boundary and package all your services and APIs. Anyone who does that has a chance to play forward. I think anybody who doesn't do that is gonna be roadkill in the uh, future state of finance. Yeah, I have a couple questions, just everything you just outlined in your thesis there. Um, and for folks who don't know API application programming interface, Marty, could, could you just give like a really quick example of an API, just so for folks who aren't familiar with yeah. it, how it works? Yeah, sure. There's there's actually a doodle video in my on, online <laughs> where I go through some examples of APIs. My my favorite example of an API, one that we all know, or at least anyone who drives a car, is you get in the car and you press one pedal and it goes, and you press the other pedal and it stops. Right, and we call the pedal that makes it go the gas pedal. And yet, if you get an electric car, we still call it the gas pedal, but there's no gas, right? And so I think that captures all the important points of an API in that to make the car go and stop, you don't have to know anything about what's happening under the hood. And in fact, someone could come along and take the engine out and the gas tank and replace it with an electric motor and a battery but you still press the same pedal and it still goes, right? You don't have to be bothered with the distinction. There are some things you know, you, you need to know. Don't pull up to a gas station in your electric car. That's not going to be very useful, right? But for the most part, the details about how to make it go 
are are abstracted away by the API. It's literally happening under the hood. This is so important because it means that someone could come along and completely change what's going on under the hood. And all the things that use the API still work. You don't break them, right? They weren't reaching under the hood and figuring out what's going on under there and depending on it. They know you want to make it go, you press the gas pedal. That's our agreement. You don't have to know anything else about how it works. And this is exactly how finance is, is um, developing. So to give an example, the Apple credit card powered by Goldman Sachs and MasterCard, right? There is an API agreed between Apple and, and Goldman Sachs. And it's very clear who does what on which side of the API. So among other things, Apple presents a, cus a customer and asks the Goldman API, what's the credit limit? And the Goldman API comes back with $2,000, right? How that happened and what happened under the hood, um, the consumer of the API, Apple in this case, doesn't need to know anything about what's going on there. That's the regulated banking business. And this way, Apple can stay out of the regulated banking business. If the regulators want to know something about how you got to that number, well, then they need to go ask the provider of the API how that happened. And all of finance is evolving in this direction. That makes I mean that makes sense like oh, as a way to like, evolve your business model too. Um, the other thing I heard in your thesis, uh, like with, with software being much more part of the future and lines between like sales trading, buy side, sell side becoming like more blurred. What is what is kind of the bigger takeaway? Does that mean like fewer people? and more software, more technology? Like, What is the thought process there of like the future of finance? I think if we look at almost any business um, and then ask, what is the future state of the business? There's usually the same total number of people, but the people are doing different things and they're using different skills than they were in the past. So as an example, a classic example in agriculture, there's some figure, I don't know, nearly half of all Americans were working in agriculture 100 years ago, right? And now it's single digit percent um, working on farms. There are a lot of people working in the agriculture food services business, but many of them have office jobs um, they're not they're not working in the fields. And so I think that in, in all the time I've been in finance, I certainly haven't seen um, let me just take one firm, Goldman Sachs, like the 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 number of employees is just going in one direction. Sometimes it's increasing very rapidly and other times it's increasing very slowly and maybe there's some slight dips, but generally it's trending up. But if you look at a different figure and ask what percentage of the people of Goldman Sachs are engaged in creating software, that figure has gone from something like 10% to something closer to 30%. Um, but it's not at the level closer to 50% of a company such as, such as Alphabet. And so generally, I don't think um, that computers um, take the number of people out of a business typically, but they very much change the activities of those people. 
Gotcha. Um, okay. I want to also follow up on uh, fintech and what I was also hearing from you is possibly increased regulations in that space. Can we uh, elaborate more on your thoughts on fintech? Sure. Yeah. So um, I don't love the term fintech. I um, actually really dislike it. I would say um, sometimes people relate to fintech as if it's this brand new thing and not accounting for the fact that banks have been creating software for many, 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 many decades. And I guess that is that is fintech as well, right? And so um, to the extent that fintech became uh, uh, came to denote doing something that banks used to do, but doing it digitally and maybe not being a bank, I don't think there's much future in that, right? So another tagline for my class was the future of fintech is banks, <laughs> right? And and I, I said that to be <laughs> kind of provocative and also a little bit cryptic, right? Which is that um, there is a role for regulation and, and institutions that are regulated that take deposits and, and make loans are banks. And you can call them something different. They're still banks and you still need regulation. But let's look at a different area of regulation and something that you might consider fintech, Julia, or you might think of it as adjacent, um, which is digital assets. People like to say crypto. I prefer to say digital assets. Um, that is an, a fascinating set of explorations and research experiments. I would say none essentially none of it is investable right now, at least not for me. And we urgently need the appropriate regulation for that business. I think we've seen some of the consequences of the lack of regulation. Just a couple of years ago, there was a very loud group of people saying, don't regulate it, you'll disrupt the innovation that America leads in. And okay, I, I don't hear so many of those voices. In fact, some of the same people were saying it's terrible that the regulators failed to regulate this. Look at all the look at all the terrible things that have happened, right? And so, what I would just say, stepping back, is if you look at many businesses, let's just take commercial av aviation as an example. It was a death sentence to get on an airplane a hundred years ago, right? And and in the early days of commercial aviation, it was really dangerous, but the FAA got in there and now there's checklists and engines have to be overhauled and privates have to, pilots have to be certified. And now air travel is one of the safest things you can do, right? So yes, there is absolutely a role for regulation. And what I would recommend to anyone in the industry is something that, um, that I helped work on when I was at Goldman Sachs post Dodd-Frank, which is, which is, Actually, rather than stand there saying, don't regulate us, don't regulate us, how about developing collaborations and partnerships with the regulators and helping them understand the business and suggesting regulation that would be good for the business? This is a strategy I recommend to everybody. And uh, I think if we're lucky, we will see the right amount of regulation for digital assets. And then I expect these experiments to crystallize into something really interesting with a lot of investing opportunities um, out there in the future. But not investable right now, but maybe in the future. 
yeah, not not investable for me. Others are investing in it and they have different risk reward preferences. Uh, but for me uh, and my personal investments and for my firm, Sixth Street, we're really excited about digital assets, um, but think that 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 the regulation still need, is still just not there. And the combination of the right regulation with the exploration that's happened. I think is going to lead to a, an incredible boom that is investable. And the reason for that, Julie, is simply there is a powerful trend, which is dematerialization, right? So well, kind of a, lot, a long word, but, but the idea is really simple. Um, many of us own stocks. Where's the share certificate for those stocks? Well, there isn't one. Right. I, I have some stocks in my brokerage accounts or some ETFs. I don't have any share certificates. They they exist in book entry or electronic form. Something I remember really vividly in Hurricane Sandy is uh, we discovered that there were share certificates for listed stocks in a basement at DTCC that got flooded. And so those share certificates were were much Right. And so then the directive came from the regulators, no more paper or material share certificates. It's all going to be electronic. This trend, the dematerialization of share certificates, dematerialization of bonds. When's the last time you saw a share, a, a paper certificate for a treasury bond? For me, it was when I was a kid. Yeah. Right. I haven't seen it in ages and ages. And so think about dollars. Many of our dollars are in bank accounts. That's in a dematerialized form. We get statements. Increasingly, the statements are electronic and not paper, right? And I go to the ATM pretty rarely these days to get those little green pieces of paper. So the dollar is also dematerializing. This trend of dematerialization of financial assets is on a one-way trend to the moon. There's very few predictions that I feel confident making, but one, I'll give you two um, for, for free. Uh, so one of them is there's going to be more software in the future than there was in the past. And there's going to be more dematerialization of assets in the future than there was in the past. And that's the reason I'm really excited about digital assets. If we get the right market structure and the right regulation in place, um, can be amazing opportunities there. Marty, this has been such an incredible conversation. I've learned a lot from you and I, I would love to have you on in the future just because I, I love your ideas. And just to pass it back to you um, for some closing comments and would love for you to plug where folks can find you or learn more, share more about your class. Where can uh, folks go to learn more? Sure. Oh, well, thank you for that offer, Julie. I do, uh, I put a lot into that class and <laughs> I kind of shamelessly plug it. So thank you for the opportunity to do that. Um, it is on my website, which is www.rmartinchavez.com slash education. Um, I had a wonderful discussion with Stanford and was able to put almost all the materials out there on the web. And so um, so they're there, especially, I'm especially pleased with the doodle videos you know, where there's this imaginary hand drawing on the whiteboard. Um, I put a lot of a lot of work into those and encourage you to check those out. They're fun. I love it. Well, Marty Chavez, partner and vice chairman at Sixth Street Partners and former CFO of Goldman Sachs. I thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Really appreciate it. 
such a pleasure, Julia. Have a great day. You too. Thanks, Marty.